0: today.
2: well struck headed toward the alley and it is gone a grand slam for daniel murphy here in the top of the first inning
0: It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Monday evening, April the twenty fourth, twenty seventeen. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you you can subscribe via the show to the show via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope. Everybody is uh, doing well, and I know I had promised to be back on Sunday, and we have yet another Monday show. But that's what ESPN Sunday Night Baseball will do for you. And I'm not sure, you know, while I have you on, I didn't check this before I came on. When is the next Sunday night? So then you guys could, who were dedicated to the podcast, could just pretty much figure out, you know, when. Let's see. So. This Sunday's an afternoon game, and then you've got another afternoon game in May, two o'clock, May fourteenth. It looks like it's going to be well Sunday, May twenty-eighth. The Mets are in Pittsburgh, and it looks like it's an eight o'clock p.m. game. So that'll be the next time, and then that'll probably be a pre-recorded prior to the game because the Mets turn around and play a four o'clock game. Oh, uh, that's mem- I think that's mem- yes, that's Memorial Day weekend. So I have to think of something there, Memorial Day weekend, because then the next day is Memorial Day and the Mets are on at 4 o'clock and holiday weekend, and I don't know how that's going to work. So next time the Mets are on late will be Memorial Day weekend. So until then, you will have me every Sunday evening. You'll have the podcast up usually by about 8, 9 o'clock, so we'll be back uh, to some normalcy next week. Anyway, um, had a chance to catch up before yesterday's ESPN game, which... Turned out to be a lost weekend for the Mets. We'll get to that in a minute. As you heard in the, uh, in the intro, Daniel Murphy, uh, a big part of that. Uh, Greg Prince, author of the book Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, and Star will join me. With it being the Sunday night baseball game, always tough to get a writer on and, and have the content stay fresh. And certainly, uh, with the Mets getting swept by the Nationals, that's what you wanted, is as fresh a content as possible. So I figured, let me do a feature and you'll hear uh, my conversation with Greg Prince prior to yesterday's Mets Nationals game. So you'll hear that in just a minute. Of course, Greg is the author of the very famous Mets blog, Faith and Fear in Flushing, that I'm sure all of you are aware of and are dedicated readers to. And we'll get into the career piazza, uh, you know, what he took on in terms of this book and some of his thoughts, and and maybe even what Mike, if if he's read it, what his thoughts are, and how uh, Greg Prince highlighted the career Piazza and and the unlikely marriage of Mike Piazza and the New York Mets and and a marriage that almost became a divorce pretty quickly. So you'll hear from Greg Prince in just a little bit. Uh, As far as the Mets, I mean, you want to talk about a lost week. I mean, I think that that clip at the beginning, the Daniel Murphy Grand Slam, uh, pretty much summarizes what really was an awful week for the Mets, for the manager. I think the manager is is certainly, uh, it's been one of his worst 10 days as, as his bad move that I talked about last week in the Miami series, that Saturday night move where he allowed Fernando Salas to pitch to uh, Kristen Yelich, has really put this team in a slump. But I want to start off with the first thing. Before I get to dispelling some narratives that I see out there, the first thing I want to really say is maybe I was wrong. And and here's where I'm going with that. I'm, I'm looking at Daniel Murphy last night killing the Mets again, and Dusty Baker appropriately saying after the game that he wants to rip the Mets. You know, he basically wants to kill them every time he plays them. And I guess, look, he's hurt. Here's a guy that played a huge role and really was the reason. I mean, he, offensively, he carried the Mets to uh, the pennant in 2015. He did not hit in the World Series. He was three for 20 in the World Series. And I believe all three of those hits. We're in Game One, so we had a very bad World Series, and um, and really that's the only postseason series. Even the one with the Nationals last year, the the five game series lost to the Dodgers at four thirty eight. So he's been terrorizing the Dodgers quite a bit uh, during his uh, during his career in the postseason. So you know Daniel Murphy, I don't hate Daniel Murphy, but when it came down to it, I did not feel that Daniel Murphy was worth a multi year deal as he was entering his early 30s, his late prime. I did not believe that having Daniel Murphy as your everyday second baseman was a great move. I liked him better at first base and and third base, and I think at first base, that's probably, if you really want to sit down and dissect it, I don't have the UZR, and I really don't care because the data is a small sample size. I think that's his best position, although he played a pretty decent third base. He has a good arm and... And you saw a little bit of that in 2015 as he as he moved around some positions at various points of the season. Even though I think everybody knew that David Wright was probably never going to be the same player, I think it was very hard for the Mets to spend 15 plus million dollars bringing Murphy back, not really feeling like you know you want him at second base. I also know that the plan all along was to bring Ben Zobrist in and put him at second base. Was more of a Sandy Alderson type of hitter, a versatile guy, an on-base guy, a guy that had a lot of contact that really played well in that very same World Series. So, so basically, they had moved on from Murphy way before anything. Now, here's the other thing: if they bring Murphy back at fifteen million, even if he has the qualifying offer after 2015, uh, who knows what the Cespedes situation is? And Murphy without Cespedes, it's it's. It doesn't make sense here. I mean, you've you got to have really both to, to really make this work. And if you're going to choose, Suspidus by far is the f- more impactful hitter. Although, you know, you start to look at the numbers here, it's basically Murphy maybe the left-handed version of Suspidus and vice versa there. I have to say I was wrong because it, with, right now it is not crazy to say that the difference between the Nationals and the Mets is Daniel Murphy. And not because he had a grand slam last night, but because his presence on the Nationals has ascended this team to, at every moment, when they play the Mets, they don't want to lose. I mean, other than 2015 in those six games that they won, the three at City Field late July, and then the next three, uh, what was it, Labor Day weekend, or right after Labor Day weekend in Washington, uh, early September, or of 2015, Mets don't beat the Nationals. They don't. They didn't beat them later that year in the last meaningless series of the season when Scherzer no hit no hit them. They didn't beat them a lot last year. They didn't beat them a lot before that. And as a matter of fact, before 2015, the Nationals were pretty much terrorizing the Mets, for lack of a better word, and beating them like a drum. And the Mets, and what really bothers me about this weekend is I understand they had injuries, and I understand there was some bad fortune, especially with the first inning yesterday. Eaton throws his arm out, um, you know, ground ball that Turner beats out, Harper beats the shift, a lot of crazy things. And you can even make this the, – the other argument is that Jay Bruce is a, a windblown fly ball away on Friday from hitting the game-winning home run, and maybe the weekend is different. I mean there's about three instances, Reyes pop-up, the Bruce near home run, and Collins making a boneheaded pitching move a, a week ago on Saturday. Mets are probably 11-8, and eight, and maybe the tone of this show is a little bit different. But the thing is this, is that I was wrong. You know, Maybe Daniel Murphy was a guy that meant should have went all out, bring back. I'm not saying as a second baseman, as maybe a first baseman or a third baseman. He certainly has outplayed Lucas Duda during the same time. He certainly outplayed David Wright. You certainly wouldn't, uh, could do a lot worse than Daniel Murphy at third base defensively. You need his bat in the lineup. It would be a really nice tandem with Cespedes. And, uh, and maybe things are different. And so I'm, a, I'm willing to admit that I was wrong. Now, did I think Daniel Murphy who really was a guy that would hit 280 with 13 to 15 home runs and 75 RBIs, was a guy that was better than Ben Zobris, better than Neil Walker, who I, who I know isn't hitting but can turn a good double play, uh, was worth all that. No, I didn't think he was an MVP candidate. He was second in the MVP voting. Who would have thought that? So I'm willing to admit when I was wrong. and But from a process standpoint, it was hard to – go out there and give multi uh, multi-year deal to Murphy. And the only team that gave him that deal was Washington, and they lucked into him because Brandon Phillips didn't want to accept the trade to, to to D.C. He winds up going to Atlanta a couple of years later. He's a guy who pretty much wanted to stay in Cincinnati. So the process wasn't bad, bad in the sense where maybe the Mets underestimated. And Paula Duca actually tweeted this on uh, yesterday and said, you know, you're underestimating – how that playoff series, that playoff run, how that turned him into maybe this next level of confidence. I mean, that's the part you can't quantify. You can't put that into his historical data prior to 2016. And certainly this guy knows how to raise his game at the moment. Too bad he couldn't do it in the World Series. Daniel Murphy's has as much to do with the Mets making the World Series in 2015. I mean, losing the World Series as he was making the World Series. He made a costly error. He didn't get a hit after game one. He played poorly. Now without him, they're not there. But let's remember—I don't remember everybody feeling, you know, Daniel Murphy was dispensable at the end of the at the end of 2015. But we were wrong. And now the Mets have to live with it. And now they have to figure out a way to get him out. And they have to figure out a way to to win with the players they do have. And let me dispel a couple of narratives because I'm really tired of it. The first narrative is, is that it's early. And although that is correct, the Mets right now are six games back of the Nationals in the loss column. Another crappy week where they sleepwalk through Atlanta and then maybe get clobbered two out of three, let's say, in in Washington, or God help a sweep, you're looking at being eight, nine, ten games out. By May 1st, that's a ton of games. You go back to 2006 when the Mets ran away with the NL East, they were ahead by about six, seven games early. And you know what the Nationals do? That that team did, that team that everybody said, ah, you know, this, you know, Reyes said it. This this version is better than the 0-6 team. Every time they have a big series, they step up and they do the right thing. They, you know, you play the Phillies in 0-6 early on, sweep them. Braves think they could still win the division, sweep them. And every time the Nationals, last year was with July, they had the four-game series, three out of four, city Field, goodbye, division over, see you later. And the Mets got to start stepping up and doing that. And let me tell you something here. Not only is it not early, you know, you don't want to keep going, it's early, because that's just an excuse to sleepwalk through some of this. I keep hearing from the manager about the injuries, and there's no doubt about that. The injuries aren't the reason why Jose Reyes is hitting 104. The injuries aren't the reason why Curtis Granderson is hitting 149. The injuries are not the reason why Neil Walker is hitting 206. Those three guys alone should be able to pick up some of the slack of the losses of Duda and Flores and Cespedes. You still have Conforto coming in who's their best hitter so far, even better than Cespedes so far, the way he's playing. So it's not like you haven't gotten anything. Now, by the way, injuries are not the reason why Juan Lagares is hitting 111. I mean, you've got four players in that lineup that are hitting like pitchers. As a matter of fact, you probably want some of the Mets pitchers up, like Syndergaard. And it's a shame because they have the best pitching staff right now in the National League. I mean, even if you look at other outcome stats like FIP fielding, independent pitching, which just takes into the walks, the strikeouts, the home runs, they're really tough. I mean, the only one that doesn't come out really looking rosy in that analysis is Matt Harvey, but Matt Harvey's kind of pitching now. He's learning how to pitch without being dominant. And I think Zach Wheeler and, and Robert Gazelman, uh, if there's some rough starts, are, are you know Wheeler really showed me a lot yesterday. He kept the Mets in that ball game, and the bullpen, despite the quirkiness of, 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 of Collins, you know you got some arms in there. You got Familia back, and I know he'll he'll figure it out. But I'm tired of the manager talking about injuries, and I'm tired of, of you know you even got people now saying, well you know maybe they fire Kevin Long, the hitting coach. They did that already, guys. Guess who's the next to go if this thing doesn't turn around? It's not the hitting coach. It's the manager. Unless Sandy Koufax, who apparently runs things around here, decides that it's not right yet to fire Terry. You know, the next guy to go, if this thing is floundering in about two to three weeks, and and the play, it's not only the record, the play is abysmal, the boneheadedness continues. I mean, you can't totally criticize him for the smoker to Zimmerman and I understand Smoker's been tough on righties, but you saw how well Zimmerman's hitting left-handed pitching. He's always leaving the guy in in the bad matchup to get to the good matchup. By the time he gets to the Murphy matchup, the, game, you know, the inning, the game's out of hand. You have familia. That's what you're going to use him for. He's not going to close. You bring him in to get the righty out. You saw how Zimmerman looked against that. Anyway, that's where the Mets are at. There's not much more to say. There's not much more to say, really, on this point, so... Anyway, um, let's take a quick break. When I return, you'll hear my interview with Greg Prince, author of the book Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star. I had a chance to catch up with him prior to uh, ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, and uh, we'll be right back.
2: Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Right now, that's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today.
0: We're back, talking Mets, and joining me is Greg Prince. You guys all know him from that popular blog of his. It's been around a while, Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, author tons of books. You probably have read them amazing again, Faith and Fear and Flushing, The Happiest Recap, and joining us tonight to talk about his latest book, Piazza Catcher Slugger Icon Star, came out last month. Uh, Greg, Mike Silva, how you doing tonight? How, how's everything going? I'm fine, Mike. Thanks for having me on. N- not a problem. Hey, what's worse, Greg? Is it the Saturday, uh, Sunday night baseball, waiting all day, or the actual game? Everyone's Everyone's cringing, preparing for the worst. Mets Nationals tonight on ESPN.
3: I see the ESPN part, unfortunately, may push (laughs) the the scales in in the direction of the actual game, but it is uh, a, a little unnatural, even after all these years of having to spend a sunny spring Sunday waiting around for your team to play baseball until it's nice and dark and even colder. But uh, that's the schedule for you, so uh, let's let's get the game in at some point soon.
0: And and don't forget, you have that little box strike zone that you get to watch all night tonight, right? So you got that you got that little goodie waiting for you.
3: Yeah, I've got a radio probably uh, with my name on it, and uh, Howie Rose and Josh Lewin coming out of it, and paying as little attention to the TV as I can, not probably.
0: I hear you on that. And uh, by the way, if you want to follow Greg, I'm sure you you know, but he's on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince. And uh, yeah, I had an interesting tweet, uh, and and it made me think of this book, uh, kind of in a roundabout way. Someone tweeted at me that, "Hey, what's what was bigger heartbreak? Was it Kenny Rogers walking in the winning, winning run, or was it uh, the Beltron strike three? And I said the Beltron strike three, but but I thought I thought about those, and it's amazing that it's about 20 years, almost 20 years ago, those 98 to 2000, 2001 Mets with Piazza, uh, the star of your book. And I got to tell you, those are going to go down, at least for me, 99 especially, with some of the most fun seasons uh, that I've seen watching this team. And um, I was wondering, as you wrote this book, which focused on Piazza, were you thinking of that era, thinking of those teams, and I guess I'll ask you the question. I mean, I know it's hard to pick. Which was harder for you, the Beltron strike three or, or losing in 99 with Kenny Rogers to the Braves?
3: I think the, the harder one was 2006 because I really believed we were going all the way. And, you know, I I thought the Stars were aligned, 20th anniversary of 86, uh, in first place from game three on, so many good things, and then, unfortunately, just kind of ended uh, 99, I will agree with you, and so many others, which is part of the reason I pursued the book. Uh, I think on, on some level may have been the most fun and rewarding season without a world championship that we as Mets fans have ever had. Uh, the ending, the the four balls Kenny Rogers threw, and that whole bottom of the 11th at Turner Field was, of course, heartbreaking, but there was something about it that kind of dissipated after the fact, I thought. And we just had this incredible ride to look back on. And of of all the years that uh, I cover in this book, which is essentially Piaf's career in the National League, um, you know, that was the fun one for for all of us. Uh, You know, a lot of drama, a lot of melodrama, I suppose, but uh, you know, there was just there was something about that team that just just kept you on the edge of your seat, really, for those four years that you mentioned. Uh, I have I really wished, you know, again in the uh, in the aftermath of ball four, of course, I wished that uh, the result had been different. I wished they were in the World Series a couple of nights later. But uh, you can't always get what you want, as somebody said. So we came about as close as we could without it being uh, completely. Uh, I won't say. A I well, say not heartbreaking, but not, but not as spirit-crushing as some other losses
0: have been. i uh, with me, Greg Prince, author of the book Piazza. And you all know him from his blog, Faith and Fear and Flushing, on Twitter, at Greg underscore Prince, and not a bigger Mets fan out there. If you had told me, and I remember, I remember exactly where I was. As a sports fan, there are certain moments where you just remember. You remember where you were, what was going on. And I remember when I found out, and I found out the old school way back then, that Mike Piazza was traded to the Mets on the radio in my car on the Van Wick Expressway, uh, not too far from Shea Stadium. But if you had told me that summer of 98 that not only would Mike Piazza have resigned with the Mets, but would go into the Hall of Fame as a member of the Mets and have the connection where the fans, for the better part of, uh, you know, three to five years, really stumped for him to get into the Hall of Fame and defended him against some of the Uh, accusations out there about his steroid use, or obviously not not proven, but alleged steroid use, I would have thought you were crazy because all that first summer when Piazza came over, it was about the booing, it was about him being a mercenary, uh, him underachieving. When you look at the numbers, thinking of him underachieving, even before the big September, which really was when this love affair uh, that that season started, uh, he still had some great numbers. And I think in context, it was amazing how unappreciative Mets fans were because this team was a nice little team in 97 and early 98, but it wasn't certainly a team that you would describe as good uh, or contending, I should say. So it's, it's interesting how far things have come with Mike Piazza and Mets fans, even to this day, where uh, you could tell Piazza loves being a part of this family.
3: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that helped inform the book. One of the reasons there there was a book is that you had this guy who, you know, started his baseball journey as, you know, a stranger. He was not a Met, and the only time we had any reason to think of him was when he came in with the Dodgers or the Mets, went to L.A., and he usually hit very well. Uh, you, you fast forward five years, and you have, as you said, this team that was sort of on the cusp of, I think contention is a fair word. They were in the wild-card race in 97 up till the last couple of weeks, and they got off to a better-than-500 start in 98, but they were just lacking that certain something, and that is what Piazza brought. And I I think the reaction that once the euphoria wore off after those first couple of weeks of, oh, my God, we got Mike Piazza, the reaction that wasn't necessarily patient I think it was, was partly just the the atmosphere you had in New York if you were a Mets fan, because if you weren't dealing with the reality of the Yankees in your life, whether that was legitimate or not, you, you brought it on yourself, your neighbors, your coworkers, people you went to school with, whatever, who were Yankee fans making your life less than optimal, let's say. You know, you were dealing with the uh, the reality of the Braves who were never going to be dislodged from first place. So we get the superstar who hit three sixty-two as a catcher of the year before, put up phenomenal numbers for LA, and you see somebody day by day and you realize he doesn't hit one thousand. In your mind, he probably does. I think we got a little bit of that with Beltron, by the way, since you mentioned him earlier. But um you know, Mike, to his credit, not only hung in there and you know, beat be back whatever demons were out there in 98 and had that great stretch drive. You know, he said, in, in I believe the exact quote was, uh, if I'm going to get booed, I want to get booed by the best, so I might as well stick around New York. Certainly could have gotten paid anywhere, and he would have produced anywhere, but you know, he got a sense of the electricity that surrounds Mets baseball and sports in New York, and, you know, he certainly added to it. Um, you know, he was willing to take on the challenge, and I, I think there's just something about him that that loves the idea of being part of a family, and that's what he has become. He's, uh, you know, now that Thomas Seaver isn't around that much anymore, he really, you know, has taken on that role as kind of the legend in residence when when he shows up, when they have some reason to honor him or just to have a – you know a retired superstar in our midst.
0: So um,
3: you know it, it wasn't an obvious fit, but you know hindsight certainly proves that it was it was the perfect fit.
0: And in context, if you go back in time, it was a while since the Mets had that kind of marquee star. Now they had some nice players. They had John Olrude and Bernard Gilkey, and they had Jeff Kent before he became Jeff Kent, of course. Uh, you know, Al Leiter was on the team, and, and the Mets still had some pitching, you know, Doc and Viola after Strawberry left. But they didn't have that slugger. They didn't have that star. And as you said, this is before David Wright. This is before Beltron. This is before, Do- uh, 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 you know, Delgado and way before Cespedes. And, you know, here you go. You know, it's been a while. It was eight years since Strawberry had left. And, you know, it was almost like the fans forgot what having a slugger was about because they had very good hitters, but they had no 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 core. You might say Todd Hundley, but Todd Hundley was he wasn't Piazza when when you think about it. So that was the interesting part. You kind of did have a slugger, but it didn't feel the same as Mike Piazza. He was the first since Strawberry that brought that component that that must see at bat, uh, you know, to the to, to the viewing experience of, of watching the Mets.
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly if Hunley had not been injured, I don't think Piazza ever becomes a Met in 1998. You needed so many dominoes to fall, whether it, it, it was Hunley's injury that was going to keep him out for several months and the fact that the Mets couldn't really get by on a steady diet of Tim Spear and Alberto Castillo and a few other guys. Um, you had you know, the, the Dodgers being bought by Fox and they deciding to – Tangle themselves up in a contract dispute with their best player and their best player, quite frankly, being unhappy with you know, pretty good offer that he was made. And you had the, the X factor of the Florida Marlins of uh, being, you know, for sale and wanting to cut payroll and being happy for the opportunity to get rid of a bunch of salaries, take Piazzas on and then kind of serve as a way station. And all of that added up to this commodity the Mets indeed had not had. I mean, the, the book starts in 92 and 93, partly because that's when Piazza's career begins, but partly because uh, at the same time that the first Met to go into the Hall of Fame as a Met, Tom Seaver, is being inducted, the, the Met organization on and off the field is just falling apart in every way possible. You know, it really is the last embers of that 86 era going out and, you know, the the team went through so many machinations and just, you know, couldn't get out of its own way. And then, you know, after 93, throughout the mid-90s, just kind of trying to climb out of a hole with limited star power, to, to put it kindly. And you know, the, the interesting parallel between Strawberry and Piazza, I think, is that Strawberry, for the most part, was surrounded by other superstars when he was at his peak, you know, you had Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez, you had Dwight Gooden, and you had some really strong players, uh, and which is why Daryl Strawberry, after his rookie year, was always independent race with the Mets. You know, Piazza had good complementary players, and they would bring in more good complementary players, some of whom had some of their best years, uh, you know, ninety-eight, ninety-nine, and two thousand. But really, it was Piazza and everybody else. I I don't think that was really a matter of ego on his part. It's just the way things went. I I look at it this way. I I think about my my sister and her husband, neither of whom were baseball fans, and the one Met they could always name back in those days was Mike Piazza. He was the Met for people who had no idea who the Mets were and who was on them. And uh, so, you know, you had that that bat, and you had – the personality that he brought, or at least the symbol uh, that he became. And it certainly uh, certainly worked out.
0: I have with me Greg Prince, author of the book Piazza, and uh, he's catching up with me here before the Mets take on the Nationals on uh, one of these Sunday night games uh, that we'll be exposed to uh, this year. You know, Greg, did you learn anything new about Piazza doing your research for the book uh, even for a diehard fan like yourself, someone who covers the team as well, you know, there's always, I would think a nugget or two, or maybe a story that you're like, I just didn't know that. And I'm curious, did you, did that come about while you were doing this project?
3: I think the, you know, was interesting was that, that period when he first comes over and, you know, which, which is often characterized as his struggle. I mean, he was putting up, as you said, great numbers, um, the fact that he, you know, was putting up really representative numbers until really until he got injured in two thousand three, and just had the had those tough times the last couple of years, I think more than discovering was just sort of being being made aware again of when I think he sort of became the guy we were never going to let him go of, and to me that was the second half of his last year. In 2005, uh, when, you know, for the first time during his tenure, he was no longer the headline act because that was the year. Beltran had been brought in. Pedro Martinez had been brought in. uh, David Wright and Jose Reyes were emerging as young stars. And Piazza, at that point, was kind of an afterthought to the operation. And once it seemed that people, Mets fans, stopped having expectations... Uh, You know, the the farewell tour began in earnest in the second half of that season where he was just, you know, followed around by standing ovations every time he showed his face at Shea Stadium and and certainly any time he got a big hit. uh, And he did have a a nice little run in the second half. Um, You know, it it was as if we were getting to say goodbye to a player for the first time because if you think about the Mets, they have not done goodbyes to their players. I was going to say they haven't done them well. They haven't done them at all, because whether it's just a matter of business players, you know, are done with their contracts and, you know, see you later, or it's just a matter of they, they can't be bothered. Um, we never had anything like that. You, you know, we, we all know about how how Seaver was not once, not twice, but really th- three times uh, kind of left unceremoniously. And you think of the guys from the 86 team and the rest of the guys from the 69-73 teams and how it was always like, see you later. You know, but the Mets did right by Piazza on his last day and the fans did right. And you know, it all kind of climaxed the final game at uh, Shea Stadium, October 2nd, 2005. You know, He comes out, they play a video in the seventh inning stretch and there's like a seven-minute ovation. It's, it's, it's incredible to watch it. And I was there and it was incredible to live through. Uh, and, I, and I think that really convinced Mike to a certain degree if he wasn't already convinced of what he meant to Mets fans and reminded Mets fans what Mike meant to them. And I, I think that, and then, you know, the way he came back with the Padres the next year and, and was still paved in applause uh kind of set the stage for the rest of his post-Met life, if you will. And I think that sort of was a harbinger of why we took it so personally as we will. Uh, when he did not go into the Hall of Fame the first few times and why there was you know general sense of celebration beyond just, hey, that's nice that Mike Piazza was going to go into the Hall of Fame and have his number retired.
0: Did you get any feedback from Piazza? Did he read the book? Do you have any kind of idea if he even knows about the book? I mean, I know he's out, you know, owns an Italian soccer team, and I know he's involved with the Mets. I don't know how involved he is with, with this kind of thing. Is there any feedback you got from the Piazza camp on the book?
3: Oh, I have not as of yet, I haven't sought it out. I might at some point uh, t- do my best to uh, get him a copy and uh, his people. Uh, you know, I decided I wanted to write this book as a fan who lived through it, you know, informed by copious research, but. You know, I was not looking to get Mike Piazza's latest thoughts on what happened 20 years before. I think he's certainly on the record with a lot of that stuff. I did interact with him at one of his press conferences last year. It was a very pleasant interaction. I didn't uh, get a chance to mention, you know, what, who I was, what I was doing this for. But, um, you know, I I guess, you know, this feeling that I lived through it I lived through what it was like to be a Mets fan in the years prior and the years during and the years after. And I I just wanted to get that, that feeling across anybody who lived through uh, that era, especially in know 93 to 05 uh, Piazza rising, the Mets falling, and then somehow they're meeting in the middle and living happily ever after. Uh, I wanted to put that out there and I, I hope it resonates.
0: You know, right before I let you go, I mean, it, Obviously, you described that final game at Shea Stadium for Piazza in 2005, and I mean, I know he's still on the roster now, and and I know he's he's not retiring, but you've got to start to think about David Wright's mortality as a baseball player, certainly. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe this is a little premature, but how do you think Wright in terms of, you know, look how beloved that Piazza is. And I told you at the beginning of this interview, you know, I remember where I was when Piazza was traded. That's how important it was to Mets' history. I'm not saying David Wright wasn't, because David Wright's been the heart and soul of his team. But at times I feel like he's been more leaving the fans wanting than maybe fulfilling them. I don't know if that, that's probably unfair. Does it make you think going through this whole Piazza thing about Wright and his place with the Mets? Because even if he does come back on the field, he's never going to be the same elite player that he once was, and, and you kind of could start looking at Wright in the past tense, certainly as a star, um, and see how he compares, or will he be another generation's Piazza or sieve or something along those lines.
3: Yeah, I think Wright is a somewhat different case in that he has been a Met his entire adult life, uh, and, you know, as he will tell you, grew up rooting for the Mets as a kid in Virginia, going to see the Norfolk Tides. Um, and he had every opportunity to leave at some point and he didn't. And unfortunately his reward has been to be injured most of the last three seasons, including this one. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, grew up with David Wright at this point, uh, which is hard for depending on what your age is to fathom that, uh, you know, he's now the guy people grew up with, but it's true. I don't I think the other problem for David Wright, uh, away from whatever you would characterize his performance as is that most of the years he was excelling, the Mets weren't doing very well. So there was no spotlight. And, you know, when Piazza was doing his thing, you know, at at its peak, 98, 99, 2000, September of 2001, the Mets were playing for something, Uh, you know, excuse me, Wright's best years were, you know, in conjunction with, you know, with Beltron Reyes, Delgado, what have you. And then the team fell off with Cliff, and it was just David Wright and a cast of supporting players, who, many of them just were kind of coming and going. Finally, you know, he has kind of a one-shining moment uh, from August to October of 2015, and it was a beautiful thing. And I think everybody, you know, when he hits the home run in the World Series, the first World Series game at City Field, uh, you know, you you have to have felt something as a Mets fan because it was David Wright, and he had been working for at that point 12 seasons to be in that position. I, I think when when the time comes, uh, you know, he will be on that shall we say Mount Rushmore of Mets. Uh, you know, led the team for so long, owns just about every record that he could possibly own and has been, you know, the number one solid citizen, let alone captain. Uh, I've yet to hear a bad word uh, muttered anonymously or on the record from anybody who has, you know, played with David Wright, uh, dealt with David Wright, managed David Wright. So, you know, when his day comes, it'll be different than with Piazza for the simple reason that there, there won't be, unfortunately, for the way things turned out, Uh, there won't be the conjunction of and he's going to the hall of fame that's just not going to happen unless there is some remarkable medical comeback in in his, his future but you know within the context of the mets and all the things you can do for your own in terms of number five and the team hall of fame i'm sure all that will be coming and i hope uh, you know, whenever he decides to do with his life, that, uh, you know, he is given every opportunity to to be a part of this organization for as long as he wants to be.
0: So what's coming up for you, Greg? I know you're out there promoting the book, uh, obviously, Faith and Fear and Flushing, 2017 Mets. Uh, you know, anything, any projects you have on the hopper, anything you got going on that you want the listeners to know about?
3: Oh, right now, just try, trying to figure those things out. And uh, as you mentioned, Sunday night baseball tonight. Going to write that up for a good old Faith and Fear. And um, yeah, I've got uh, I have a um, appearance at the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse coming on the uh, on the 40th anniversary of Tom Seaver's trade to Cincinnati. Wow. <laughs> enough, June June 15th, uh, I will be there to talk about Piazza uh, with Jay Goldberg, the owner of, uh, Bergino in Manhattan and to, you know, sign copies and Q and a, and that sort of thing. And hopefully we'll have some other things to, uh, to, to mention on the blog, but otherwise, uh, f- figuring out, uh, what, what's next, I suppose.
0: Well, enjoy Sunday night baseball, enjoy the strike zone and mute it and listen to Howie and Josh, and hopefully you sync things up close enough. So it, it's not too wonky, but, uh, Hey, there's a lot worse things that you could go through. If the worst thing you can is Sunday Night Baseball, you're in pretty good shape as a baseball fan, so you can't complain. That means your team is good, right, Greg? It's still a Mets game. <laughs> right. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks so much for being generous of your time on the weekend, and we'll uh, we'll catch up again.
3: Thank you very much, Mike. Great being with you.
0: And that's Greg Prince. Faith and fl- Fear and Flushing, at Greg underscore Prince is the handle, and uh, appreciate him coming on and, and joining us here prior to, uh, to Sunday Night Baseball. Uh, we'll be back right after this.
2: Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Right now, that's METS M E R I Z E D online.com and get Metzmerized today.
0: We're back, final segment, and uh, hope you enjoyed that interview with Greg Prince, uh, always uh, one of my favorites. So, check out the book Piazza. I think uh, I think you'll enjoy a piazza catcher slugger icon star, and you can get it on Amazon and wherever uh, wherever books are sold. So anyway, uh, hope you enjoyed the show. I know a little bit tough with the uh, the Sunday night baseball scenario, but I'll be back regular time next week. Hoping to have you know here's a, a little tease uh, Keith Law, who's got a book out, a Smart Baseball. Hoping to have him join me next week, so you'll have Keith Law on next week's show. Let's hope knock on wood have that scheduled and we'll see how that goes of course I want to thank Greg Prince you can check him out on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince and check out his book Piazza catch your slugger icon star you can check me out on metamorizeonline.com all the time check me out on Twitter at Mike Silva Media and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Blog Talk Radio pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire I'm your host Mike Silva hope you have a great rest of the week enjoy the rest of your Monday night I'll be back on Sunday, regular time. Take care.